Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well and I can't believe that we're coming up to three years of this podcast. Thank you so much to all of you who've been listening from the start. I really can't believe that it's been this long and I can't believe how many people I've spoken to but sometimes it freaks me out because I'm like fuck who else who else is there who's going to be willing to talk to me especially because I don't leave my house and I don't meet anyone and I spend most of my time with my boyfriend my flatmates and my dog so I never know how I'm even going to gain access obviously there's so many fascinating people from all over the world I get really intimidated but sometimes that guest falls right into my lap and that's exactly how it happened with Amanda Montel she is a perfect example of why I should never give up and I should always keep looking in the most unexpected places for fascinating people who can come onto this podcast and teach me and maybe you know enlighten you in some way I met her at a pool party, which is somewhere that you can never find me. I think it was my first ever pool party. Normally I avoid them at all cost. And everyone there, everyone at the party had brought their swimsuit and everyone was super cool and comfortable and casual and having loads of fun in the water. And I just fucking couldn't bring myself to participate, but I didn't want to leave because everyone was so nice and it was my friend's party. So instead I decided to just sit next to the pool, the only person outside of the pool, um, dressed head to toe, wearing an industrial strength boiler suit, a purple boiler suit looking like a creepy sort of pedo Barney the dinosaur. I only say pedo because it's like that person who's at the park who doesn't have a kid. I felt that way being at a pool party but not having a swimsuit and keeping all of my clothes on while everyone else is like half naked and being vulnerable and I'm not. Uh, So that was a bit, um, it was a bit awkward. But almost immediately I was drawn into a fascinating and small talk free conversation with today's guest. Her name was Amanda Montel. That makes me... (laughs) That makes it sound like this is the conversation that took place at that pool party. It isn't. But she made me feel so at ease. She was so interesting. And she's so fucking knowledgeable that I'd never really met anyone at a party like her before. And I couldn't stop thinking about our conversation for ages afterwards. And then I asked her if she wouldn't mind coming on to my podcast to kind of repeat so many of the things that she told me. She studies language, right? That's her kind of forte. But one of the areas that she's redirected that towards is the language of cults, right? Of cultism. How is it that we use words and phrases and slogans to be able to pull people into 
cult-like establishments. And and they're not just the traditional kind of cults that we see in the Netflix documentaries that took place in the 70s or the 80s or 90s. Like Cultish behaviour and tendencies exist all around us. They're kind of almost the foundation of modern day marketing and branding. And she has this excellent podcast that I was recently a guest on called Sounds Like a Cult, in which she explores the unusual places that we can find incredibly cult-like tendencies. So anywhere from uh, diet culture to soul cycle to vegan food to the Kardashians. Like she, they just, they just cover such relatable subjects and really bring home to us how easy it is to manipulate people with simple turns of phrase. And so she's here today discussing all things cults. We talk about what makes something a cult, how cults often rise to make up for institutional issues. We discuss the power of cults and how we can even get sucked into the cult of one or pulled into a cultist relationship with just one person, which can often be an abusive dynamic. We discuss the cultish tendencies of both political parties and how the diet industry in particular uses cultish language. And we talk about what to be aware of when you're on the lookout for a cult and the danger of thought terminating cliches. And we explore that in more depth in this episode. One of the things that I loved most about this chat is how she breaks down the fact that anyone it can happen to anyone. There's a part of us that watches these documentaries kind of because we're fascinated and we feel like this could never happen to me. I could never be sucked into something like that. But she really breaks away from any kind of stereotype that we might have built up in our head, not from a place of prejudice, but from a place of wanting to think that could never happen to me, thinking they are different from me. I would never do that. And given that this podcast is about shame and what sh- and how much of a tool shame is when it comes to cults, I just thought this was such an interesting subject. She's a fucking excellent communicator and a joy to behold. So go read her book, Cultish. It's a bestseller. Go listen to her podcast, Sounds Like a Cult. And please enjoy falling in love with the excellent Amanda Montel. Amanda Montel, welcome to Ai Wei. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm gorgeous. Thanks for asking. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. God, I feel like I've just spent about a week with you because I've been reading your book and then listening oh. to your entire podcast, oh, which Christ. is very good. Uh, and I, uh, I, I love all of your work. I think it's so fascinating and so, so vital in this moment. I can see why your book has been hailed as so important because oh. there's so much decoding in there um, and a way for us to all not only learn, but also unlearn a lot of the dangerous wording that exists in our society that's kind of manipulating us. So just for anyone who doesn't know, um, can you explain what your book Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism is about? Of course. So my book is about the language of cults, in scare quotes for those listening on audio only, from Scientology to Soul Cycle. So mm. I've interpreted the word cult quite broadly. When I set out to write the book, I was hoping that my personal understanding of the definition of the word cult would become more precise and more clear. But in fact, the opposite was true. I spoke to so many religious studies scholars and sociologists and psychologists, and everybody's interpretation of cult was slightly different. It has so much to do with the background of the speaker, the perspectives of the speaker. The word cult is so 
judgment loaded and sensational. And um, so I I realized that when I'm talking about these sort of fanatical fringe groups, I either need to be really, really specific about my language and talk about like, say, a destructive doomsday millenarian sect <laughs> like Heaven's Gate, or I need to hedge my language a little bit and use terms like cultish, because while we might not all agree that Scientology and SoulCycle are full-blown cults, we can at the very least agree that they are cultish. So as our culture increasingly moves away from more traditional sites of spirituality and community, belonging and ritual, we increasingly look to secular sites like cult fitness studios and uh, social media communities, etc., to fill those voids. And some of them are mostly harmless and some of them are really destructive. But I do believe that we're living in one of the most cultish times in history. And I perceive the world through a language lens. Um, so I wanted to, to break down the linguistic techniques that this wide spectrum of groups uses for better and for worse to create a sense of cultishness. Yes. And I have like a zillion questions. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't even know where to begin. Okay. I think we'll start with just what does the word cult mean to you? Oh my God. It changes every day. I mean, I, I've been talking about cults and analyzing them for so long that sometimes I think, am I losing interest in this subject matter? And then I'll come across a different fanatical subculture, whether it's like Taylor Swift stands freaking out over the latest drop, or, you know, I'll attend a conference attended by you know, defectors from really extreme high control religious communities. And I'll be reminded that I am indeed endlessly fascinated by this. But I would say, you know, there are sort of um, like red flags to look for that can mm -hmm. tell you that a group is a sort of quote unquote destructive cult um, or on my podcast, we would call it a get the fuck out level cult. Mm -hmm. um, and these would be things like, you know, an ends justify the means philosophy an us versus them mentality, um, uh, uh, sometimes supernatural beliefs, but not always sometimes a single charismatic leader, but not always various kinds of coercion and conditioning and conversion. Um, and I'm leaning on the work of a religious studies scholar named Rebecca Moore in naming those conditioning, conversion and coercion, which is uh, our three C's that some people use uh, in place of the term brainwashing. Um, some people would say that, you know, exploitation is involved, various levels of abuse is involved. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's really, really tough. You know, there's this, uh, theologian and journalist named Tara Isabella Burton, who has talked in her work about how as hard as it is to define a cult, scholars have been arguing for even longer about how to define a religion, you know, like sometimes a religion or a cult doesn't even have to involve God or the metaphysical. And I really like the way that Tara Isabella Burton defines a religion. She says it's easier to say what it does rather than what it is. And she says that a religion is there to provide spirituality, community, identity, and meaning. Um, and there are quotes like, you know, cult plus time equals religion. So all of these boundaries are so blurry and so permeable. I wish there were clearer answers, but my interpretation of the word cult changes every day. <laughs> well, this is why the kind of like the goopification or the soul cycle of it all, there, there is a religious aspect to it. Even the way that the um, instructors speak, you know, yes. I find at the, a lot of the cycle kind of places that I tried once each because my ass felt like it was going <laughs> to fall off my body, um, which is the only time I've actually felt like I had an ass. Uh, but it felt like I was being preached to in a sermon. And I can totally see why that appeals to people. I think something that I, uh, I think is very important about your work and your book especially is that you 
are analytical, not only of why people are susceptible to cults and that it's very important to, to not just kind of dismiss those people as stupid or naive or overly vulnerable. Um, there's a, there's a kind of form of like subconscious shaming and judgment that we have towards the people who, you know, get carried away with the charismatic leader and go and take all their fucking clothes off and perform all of these, you know, like absurd rituals. I'm talking about the most extreme sort of cults, you know. I'm, right. I'm, the ones that the media has taught us to to view as to cults, focus on. you know, right. people on a compound, shaved heads, midsummer actually, vibes. Yeah. And actually you have like a lot of human empathy for the fact that a lot of these people are very smart, but a lot of these people are... um they're, they're lost in a way of like, I, I've always felt with religion in particular. And, you know, there is a blurry line between religion and cult. I've always felt like religion is a substitute for the fact that when you're 18 years old, it's really odd that you're expected like, okay, well, you're an adult now. So mm. fuck off and make your own choices and get out mm-hmm. of the house and go and experience all of these adult things, start paying your bills and, and make huge decisions that might impact the entire future of your life. That that's fucking terrifying at oh, 18 yeah. we, we don't know fucking shit at 18 they might know now at 18 more than we did maybe in our generation but knowing the language and knowing the jargon isn't the same as having the experience of being an adult so however informed an 18 year old today might be they still haven't actually got the lived experience and I don't think you actually become an adult and maybe I'm just saying this you know projecting um, but I don't think <laughs> you really start to become an adult until your late 20s so that's, that's when your brain is fully formed and you've started to understand and you've made enough mistakes to start to learn like, okay, now I'm going to start shaping my life appropriately. And so in this time where you're just kind of mollycoddled for 18 years, if you're lucky-ish, and then thrown out into a terrifying and like ever increasingly scary world, I completely understand why people would want a leader or a, or a community. Like we're all online all the time. We're all lonely all the fucking time. Yes. And, and I, I, I think it's really interesting how you draw a kind of, um, parallel between the kind of big, like one of the big booms of cult culture, uh, which is in the seventies when there was huge political disarray. Yes. And then now post Trump, huge, like wild, like, um, uh, kind of dissolving of our society. Yes. It's when people we, need this shit most. That's right. You know, cults tend to thrive during times of of social upheaval and tumult when we lose trust in the institutions that are mm. supposed to provide us with support, whether that is the church or the government or the healthcare system. And the United States and cults have this pretty consistent relationship for a few reasons. First of all, we do lack a lot of institutional mm. support in this country that other, you know, developed nations have. You know, we don't have, you know, universal health care. We don't feel that the government will sort of save us when we get sick or when we lose our jobs. And so we feel the need to turn to alternative groups and some of them are more destructive than others. But also, you know, to your point, like we are living in a time when there is at least the illusion of almost two many choices for who to be and where to go and what your life should be as an adult. It's 
this choosers paradox thing where like, yeah, you, you come of age. And did you use the term molly coddled? I did. Why? I never heard that. What is that? I mean, I can, I can infer what that means. I think it just means like sort of, uh, in an infantilizing way, smothered with care. Cradled. Yeah. Just like, just like as if you are, as if you're made of glass. You know what I mean? I love that. Like, yes, you're, 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 you're molly coddled. Um, and this actually speaks to an important point where, you know, we think that people who join cults are desperate, disturbed, you know, intellectually deficient, like truly, truly lost in a way that can be hard to relate to. But actually, what I found in in my interviews and in my looking into this is that the people most susceptible to cults are those who have this, you know, oddly vulnerable combination of optimism and Mm -hmm. privilege. They are people who believe that solutions to the world's most urgent problems, whether it's poverty or racism or addiction, can be found and that by affiliating with this one group or ideology or diet, they could be a part of that change in themselves or in the world. Um, and also like they need to have a certain amount of privilege because they need the resources and the connections, the money, the, you know, the hope to stick it out even when the cult's promises don't end up coming true. You know, if you're truly lost or if you truly are quote unquote desperate, you're going to get out of there right away when the multi-level marketing community or the diet you signed up for and sunk all these costs into doesn't end up fulfilling its promises. Um, so that's another sort of myth that people tend to believe about about these folks who wind up in the most destructive cults like Jonestown, but also ones that are more cultish like certain diets. Um, but yeah, it is this chooser's paradox thing where like we want an identity template, whether we're joining the the cult of, you know, conspirituality, which I can define that term later, or the cult of Glossier or Goop or whatever it is. You know, we want to wake up in the morning and be like, I am I am a Goop fan. Like, I'm a Goop lady. And this is how a Goop lady dresses. And this is what a Goop lady eats. And there's a lot of comfort in that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, 
because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members, because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, th- I think it's really, uh, really poignant, the thing about choices. And I think it kind of like lends itself to both of our points. You, um, you point out Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag speech. Yes, that, that, that I, you know, forgotten about because there's just so many great things about that series, especially that season that um, I ingest. And, and it really moved me reading it again, which is, I want someone to tell me what to wear every morning. I want someone to tell me what to eat, what to like, what to hate, what to rage about, what to listen to, what band to like, what to buy tickets for, what to joke about, what not to joke about. I want someone to tell me what to believe in, who to vote for and who to love and how to tell them. I think I just want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because I think so far I've been getting it wrong. (gasps) I got chills hearing you read it again. (laughs) I know. And the fact that she's saying it to a priest, it's like, Sometimes influencers are our new priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for better oh, and for God. worse, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's just that it's now more of a matriarchy traditionally online than the patriarchy. Uh, although a matriarchy derived from a patriarchy? I don't know. Like the gender dynamics of cultishness are really interesting. Like, I know. We end up giving people the power we think we, we've been conditioned to believe that they deserve. So while we tend to follow, you know, Elon Musk types when it comes to hmm. money or technology, or God or government, we follow Gwyneth Paltrow types when it comes to nutrition or parenting or love. And it is all just our proxy parents. It is there, there, there is something that really resonates, I think, with a lot of people about that, that flea bag speech, which is that like there's just so many fucking options and everything feels like a fucking emergency and a clusterfuck and life yes. is just so it couldn't be further from simple. You hear about those people who go and live off grid. And you understand why, because this is just too, like our brains have not even adapted in 2000 years to identify that someone sending a rude tweet is not the same as us having a physical attack in front of us that could endanger us. So, you know, like imagine (laughs) for for those brains that still think saber-toothed tiger, saber-toothed tiger, that still have this kind of terror of tribalism, right? Which I think also comes into this, that we have a, um, we don't have a terror of tribalism. We have a terror of being ostracized from the tribe because we associate our safety with a group, you know. Yes. Oh, this is very human. I think we're quite cultish by nature. Mm. You know, we fare better in groups much, much more than we do all on our own. And you know, to be socially rejected or to be lonely is sort of our our greatest collective fear. And so whenever society and I think our our dig, increasingly digital society increases those feelings of loneliness and ostracization, uh, it just makes people even more susceptible to to a very confident sounding person on a pulpit, even if that pulpit is virtual, telling us, you know, this is how you can be safe. These are the answers. Oh my God, but your talk about like, you know, how our brains haven't adapted. Like this is all I've been thinking about for the past year and a half because I'm I'm writing a new book called The Age of Magical Overthinking. And like mm. this, this stuff about, you know, 
cognitive bias and behavioral economics and like why we are the way we are right now is like it's it's the next natural step from talking about cults <laughs> well I mean I think uh I think this is why we got on so well the first time we we <laughs> met at a party we've only met once before but we met at a pool party where I had uh forgotten to bring my swimsuit so I stayed sitting <laughs> in a full jumpsuit like covered head to toe I looked like I I looked like a um a plumber who was being very over familiar with their clients and everyone was in swimsuits and I I just looked like a pervert by the hot tub, no, I dressed from perfect. head to toe, like, dressed like one of the like Mario brothers. And it, you're in you a bikini and we're having like a full on uh, chat about cults and language and society. And what I want to get into in a second is kind of like the, the political cultism that we're seeing. Rising, oh, sure. Oh, um, yes. Last, Let's get into like, it. I thought it was so but I was thinking about how we met. And you know how there are those questions on dating apps. It's like, where will you find me at a party? And people will be like with the snacks or with the dog. I'm like in the hot tub talking about cults with the other freaks. (laughs) (laughs) With the plumber plumber freaks. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, before we get into that, I want to also just touch on something that you highlight in your book, which is the fact that there is a a reason for our obsession with cults, right? A lot of people will have seen the title for this podcast and been like, oh, fuck yeah, cults. I wonder what I'm going to learn about it. Um, I personally do not have uh um an interest in specific like I've watched I think Wild Wild Country but I don't think it resonated with me and I think that's probably from a place of fear mm. but I think from a different place of fear some people are obsessed and like people watch these shows in the millions uh what what drives that will you explain that to me Sure. I mean, in the beginning of the book I talk a little bit about rubbernecking, right? I mean, I think What is we, that? Yeah, so it's a sort of psychological response where we notice danger, whether Mm -hmm. it's a car crash is the classic example, or even just a headline about a car crash or another kind of danger or tragedy. And we can't pull ourselves from staring at it because we're scanning for threats. We want to determine whether or not this tragedy is a risk for us. And our bodies, to your point before, have trouble distinguishing the difference between, you know, a, a danger that's right in front of us, a predator or something, and, and news of a disaster. And so we continue watching cult documentary after cult documentary, not necessarily because there's some like twisted perverse freak inside of us, although in some of us there is. I think it's really because we're almost trying to psychologically prepare for a moment when that might happen to us or we want to you know tell ourselves like if i if i watch enough documentaries then i won't be at risk for this type of abuse um but my argument is that like you know no matter how many cult documentaries you watch or true crime documentaries you watch like it's in our nature to be susceptible to this type of influence and and not everybody is going to be equally drawn to a wild wild country-esque commune you know cults look different for everyone sometimes you're not wearing a robe you're wearing some brightly patterned leggings but you know this (laughs) this type of communalism and tribalism is is extremely deep-rooted well i mean okay so then politics right Mm. uh not the first time i've brought this up but the first time i brought it up with someone who can like totally fucking school me on why this is happening which is why i'm so excited to have you here um so a lot of us listening to this podcast me i've I've definitely been a part of it have are either still in the throes of or have 
had a moment of that we've needed to be like, hang on a minute, I need to check myself. Um, right. Of, you know, a lot of us are liberals. I think a lot of the people listening to this, this is a podcast that's not specifically for one political ideology, but traditionally it is liberals uh, and people even who are, you know, further left than that, who listen to this podcast. Now, we have seen such a cultishness uh, amongst especially the far right that we've always been able to identify and just be, and especially because it's so like deeply intertwined with uh, like very kind of like almost like quite orthodox religious um, beliefs, you know. Fundamentalism. So, yeah, fundamentalism and, and like the lack of reproductive rights and like holding on to a, you know, a fucking fictional book as as some sort exactly. of like modern day law uh, is, is so preposterous to us. But all while we were looking at them and pointing at them and being quite judgmental of them, we didn't realise that we were brewing our own cultishness on the left that I think was a response to Donald Trump bringing the far right more into like, you know, out even of the, more place, yeah, right. out of the periphery, like right into like the mainstream. That's and right. so I think that that meant that there was a response with our own cultish behavior somewhat in, you know, in the left. And I've spoken to Megan Jane Crabb, who's a wonderful activist on this podcast about her own kind of personal feelings about how there is a, um, fear amongst us, uh, a certain language that we have to use. And if you don't use that language, you don't use that language perfectly, you will be ostracized, you will be punished. It is us versus them. A lot of the things that you point out, there's a lot of fear mongering around the culture of it. And and you there, there's a pressure to, to fit into a kind of uniform. And I think as soon as there is a uniform for any kind of culture, then we slip into cult uh, ideology. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the, you know, like the left's ideas or the liberals ideas. Like, like that's what I subscribe to in my ideology. But I think the way that we have been carrying on has made me take a step back politically because I, and I think maybe this is the same thing that makes me not want to watch cult documentaries. As soon as I notice any kind of arbitrary behavior that feels like it's happening for the sake of something, I immediately inherently, since I was a baby, reject it. Mm. And so when that means social mm -hmm. norms or anything that feels like I'm now being told to do something, but I'm not really being explained exactly why. Oh, I had the same reaction. I mean, this is why I see cultishness everywhere. Well, it's yeah. a combination of things, including my dad growing up in a cult and me growing up on those mm. stories, which we can talk about momentarily. But um, yeah, I mean, I talk about in in cultish a little bit, how when a piece of language cues you to have a strong emotional response while getting you to stop asking questions, when a piece of language prompts you to morally divorce yourself from some, you know, an inferior other, uh, when a piece of language um, cause you to to simply stop thinking for yourself and and creating a sense of pushback, that's a language, that's a piece of language worth questioning. Um, and certainly like I, I want to communicate that when I talk about the cultish spectrum, this wide range of groups from Jonestown and Heaven's Gate all the way to social media influencers, I by no means want to communicate that the stakes and consequences of these groups are the same. But a lot of the techniques of manipulation and, um, and, and sometimes solidarity forming in a very positive way uh, are similar. Mm -hmm. And when you can notice them in your own speech, which is hard to do because language is so invisible and we pick it up so organically. I mean, it's it's the first thing we adopt when we join a group and it's the last thing we let go because we grow up with 
axioms like sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you. You know, we really don't stop to notice the material power of language. But if we can stop for a second to like interrupt that extremely you know, emotionally charged response whenever a buzzword or an us versus them label, a nickname for the enemy is invoked and sort of ask like, what does this language mean? Mm. Because a lot of the times cultish language is not there to make communication clearer or more succinct. There's specialized jargon that does that, that may or may not be cultish. Cultish language often is there to make meanings more obscure. It's really just there to rally people around some sort of collective mission, to get people to fall in line, to encourage conformity, to encourage those good evil binaries. And, you know, it, we don't like to live in nuance, obviously. You know, why? It's so, why? <laughs> why? Well, because I love, I love, I live for nuance. Like, I know, a... I, me too. And, and, and people sometimes get angry. I mean, I'm sure you know better than most people, like as a, a public speaking figure that, you know, if, no, if you... I'm perfect and everyone loves me. So I think you're mistaking <laughs> no, like, me with someone else. <laughs> if you sort of like violate, um, a, a dogmatically set vocabulary. You know, if you're not using the language that has been established as like, this is what good people use. This is what the in-group uses. And if you're violating that language or if you're questioning it, you're bad, you're you're an outsider, like you you deserve to be demonized. You know, people people don't like that type of questioning because it feels threatening. Um, it feels really destabilizing when you've been taught like, oh, no, these are the answers and this is what makes someone good. You know, we we think binarily in in so much of life because it's a simple way to categorize things, um, black and white thinking, if you will. And there have been psychologists who've who've tried to break that down. But, you know, a lot a lot of life is binary, you know, like fight or flight. <laughs> well, is it easier um, to control people if they think in black and white because then you don't have to be challenged by their nuance and by their extra questions. So I think binary thinking was probably extremely useful for survival uh, thousands of years ago. But now as life becomes more complex and more abstract, like we need complexity. Um, but also on social media, so much complexity gets flattened and blunted. Um, and so there doesn't end up being room also because of the pure practicality of like, how are you supposed to have a nuanced conversation with thousands and thousands and thousands of individuals at once? It's just and like, a word count like a, and, an and a word count. I yeah. know. Oh, my God. How many times have I gone over the word count of an Instagram comment or a DM? Like if I, I'm being silenced. Cult of Instagram. Listen, I'm a member. Um but yeah, no, I think there is cultishness all across the wide political spectrum. And that doesn't mean that that cultishness is going to result in the same type of violence um, or the same consequences. But mm. it is worth if, you know, if you're a curious person and if you consider yourself a, a critically thinking person who, you know, wants to wants to understand like some version of consensual reality, then it is a, a good idea to, to question language that causes you to have those strong and yet confounding emotional reactions. So with something like, you know, your podcast is excellent and uh, your guests are really like well chosen and you talk about the cult of the Kardashians, the cult of goop, the cult of feet, <laughs> like the, the <laughs> fetishes, like uh, the the cult of veganism even can we uh like we know what the dangers are of like children of god that 
terrible yes. you know, cult in which like children were had sex but we know about like the wild wild country and like the kind of big dramatic like even the Scientology kind of like cult slash religion um when it comes to the more sort of like asinine uh <laughs> harmless you know what I mean yeah. like cultish groups that we find on social media uh you're not saying a cult is necessarily always evil, always bad. You use like football teams as an excuse, like not as an excuse, as an example of like yeah, how or, kind of cultish or, or music can fans. be positive. Right. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's good and bad in everything. You know, fanaticism itself is a pretty intense uh, emotion or like mode of participation. And so there can be, you know, us versus them, them dynamics and, um, you know, isolation from your real life if you're spending too much time as a member of a certain fandom. But yeah, the the idea of the podcast is to sort of analyze the the cults we all follow, the the groups that put the cult in culture, whether we're talking about Instagram therapists or Disney adults. Um, and that is not to say that we should disaffiliate from any group that could be considered cultish. I don't think we should do that at all. In fact, like I was concerned setting out to write cultish that it would make me an even more sort of cynical, misanthropic version of myself. But instead, what all of this cult commentary has done for me is cause me to be more empathetic and more compassionate for the inherent sort of superstitiousness and dreaminess and communalism of people and and more skeptical of myself. Like one of the most humbling things that I learned about while writing the book, and we did an episode on this, is uh, how a one-on-one relationship can be cultish. You know, the cult of one could show up in a toxic romantic relationship. I have been in so many cults of one, I'm ashamed to admit. And that's that's a really humbling thing to notice. So yeah, on the podcast, we sort of uh, we're, we're in the position of uh, wait, implicating wait, wait, wait. everyone. Before you, before you, like, can we delve a little bit further yeah. into that? Because I think yeah, that's yeah. really important, right? So let's use, because I think that's more accessible to a lot of people, because all of us almost have been in some sort of, either with a friend or a, a family member or a one-on-one romantic relationship. Uh, we have been in something that, you know, resembles what you're describing. So talk to me about like the cult of one, like what that can look like. So someone can see if they're in one. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I actually wrote like a little personal essay about this um, when Cultish first came out for Cosmopolitan. And I'm writing about it in my next book because, oh my gosh, I like... I'm so uh, curious and stupefied by like my own behavior, you know, like how did I end up in a dynamic that in retrospect clearly looks like a cult, even if I wasn't, you know, necessarily in a robe on a compound with a group of people. But, you know, the language we used to describe uh, abusive relationships and cults is different, but so much of the influence is the same, you know, in relationships, you might call it grooming, whereas uh, in cults, they call it love bombing. Although now on the internet, love bombing is used to describe everything. Thank you, West Elm Caleb. Um, And the, the, but it is true that like in a toxic relationship, so many of the red flags are similar. You find yourself defecting from your systems of support from your family, from your friends in order to protect your loyalty to this person. You might end up dressing differently. You might end up, you know, mirroring the way that they speak. Um, You end up sort of self-justifying so much in order to stay because you were promised a certain future or a certain life and you're unwilling to admit that 
that promise is not going to come to fruition, sort of sunk cost fallacy comes into play. Um, yeah, on that episode, we talked to Dan Savage, who's a sex and relationships advice columnist. And uh, it was it was really enlightening. Um, I, I never tire of, of talking about that because I think most people, if they've not, you know, been in sort of a spiritual quote unquote cult, they've had a boss or a friend or a lover who's made them feel um, totally disconnected from themselves. It's relinquishing dominion, isn't it? Like your own kind of self-determination to someone else. It's like that, that is the inherent act of like joining a cult of one or a cult of many. It's like you are saying, all right, my ideas or my reality, I'm going to relent to another, maybe not fully relate, maybe someone's just saying stuff that you agree with and you're like, finally, someone I fucking agree with. But I think a lot of it is just going like, I'm going to lay down my ideas of the world for yours and take them on as my own. And then maybe even preach them to others. Like we do this so much with diet culture. Oh yes. Oh my God. And it's also like, you might think, I mean, I think of myself as this like incredibly independently thinking, like a mouthy person. And the, I mean, the right cult leader for you in a one-on-one dynamic might make you feel like extremely special in the beginning. Like they see you for who you truly are. Meanwhile, they trade that later for, for manipulation and for power. Um, but it, it doesn't always look like what you might think cult surrendering or, or cult joining looks like. Totally. So so when we start talking about the um the the dangers, right? We've said that like there can be kind of like a harmless form of cults. And we've said like, you know, football clubs or fandoms, etc. Like as long as they don't push that shit too far, right. can be like anything in moderation can be a lovely communal experience. Absolutely. But there is something quite interesting like, you know, I spend maybe too much time uh, thinking about diet culture and uh, exercise culture and wellness and the bullshit of the changing of the words to wellness when a lot of the time, not all of the time, a lot of the time, what they really mean is weight loss. Um, And being that, you know, like we're it's, you know, it's the new year. We're already being bombarded with like, okay, you've, 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 you've dared to eat and enjoy yourself with your friends and family. You <laughs> fucking pig. Now it's time <laughs> to punish yourself. And it's dry January and it's veganuary and it's weight loss January. And you're going to start, you're going to buy a really expensive bit of exercise equipment. And this is going to be the year, new year, thinner you, new year, better you. Um, so, so this is kind of, you know, again, this kind of cultish uh, thing that we come to expect like we're hyper normalized it's not like fucking weird that just because it's a certain arbitrary month that came after christmas we now all get scolded and punished and all the stuff that we love gets taken away from us like we don't (laughs) we don't question that that it's like well it's january it's the month of guilt it's the month of guilt and and shame like the fact that that's not even weird I know. It's so weird that that's a global phenomenon that happens at the top of every year, not randomly in March. Around March, we start to get new, like, get your beach body ready shame. But again, like the fact that we have seasons of shame that we have hyper normalized (laughs) and that we do not question is already the sign of a cult. Hyper normalizing to any like really peculiar, arbitrary behavior, I think is extremely scary. It is. And it it has this religious undertone. I mean, diet culture in general is rooted in American Protestantism. So 
in the U.S., I think diet culture is particularly cultish because of its capitalist (laughs) qualities, of course. Um, But also there's this American Protestant self-flagellation thing going on. So in the U.S., you know, our ultimate religion is self-improvement, right? And diet culture and fitness culture is is almost a religion for us because it connects these sort of secular American values like productivity and individualism and, you know, a commitment to meeting normative beauty standards to sort of religious aspects. Being like, being beautiful because you are made in God's image and God's image is beautiful. Like, is there something in that maybe? I think so. I mean, th- this is a sort of prosperity gospel or prosperity gospel adjacent where this idea emerged um, as a result of the Protestant Reformation that, uh, you know, God not only ha- plays a role in your heavenly blessings, but in your monetary blessings, in your mm-hmm. quote unquote success in general. Um, uh, God plays a role in the American dream. This is why we have language like hashtag blessed. Like there's so much religious language in like American financial spaces like we have the sacred stock stock market bell and in god we trust um but sort of you know diet culture and fitness culture connects these values these virtues really of of you know self-improvement and productivity and ambition with religious qualities like devotion and submission and transformation and there's a reason why like so much shame is attributed to to weight and to bodies because it has this, this Christian undertone. Um, think of so much of the language that we use in diet culture. It is so explicitly religious talk of like cleansing and purifying and obedience and discipline and perfection. Like there are undeniably biblical undertones well, here. Also like, don't forget like the ultimate goop queen, Jesus, who did a 40 day fast. <laughs> Can you imagine how much Instagram, especially like five years ago before we were all like, fuck this, would have been like, oh my God, what discipline. Look at those abs. <laughs> Look at that long glossy hair and a 40 day water fast. What a legend. Was it even water? Like, uh, so, so devastating. But also then you kind of like, you can kind of not to, uh, word salad this now I'm trying really hard to but I'm just very excited uh, <laughs> that you're here um but uh, I uh there's also kind of like the cult of white supremacy right that is kind of unfortunately married with the kind of religious history of the United States uh, in particular of America and so uh there is a f- there is a tie-in to white supremacy and fat phobia Right. Oh, of course. And the ways in which we judge like body fat, especially in certain areas as being too close to ethnic body shapes and our fear of that. So it's this kind of like sickening, like, and I think why this is important is just to kind of make people realize like this is not a coincidence and this is not just you and you are not stupid for falling in line with any of this stuff or falling victim to it. This is a very old, very refined, well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. uh, Becoming more well-oiled all the time. Constantly and more accessible because of technology. Absolutely. And because of the way that the language changes. I mean, I remember in a past life, I I worked in the beauty industry. I was a beauty editor. That was my day job for a few years. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I remember the day when I was like 24 that our editorial team was called into a conference room and told by our, you know, thin, white, blonde boss that mm-hmm. uh, we would no longer be using the term weight loss. 
we would no longer be using the term diet in our articles. We were now going to be using the terms cleanse and detox um, and wellness. The, the content was the same. The, the, the messaging was the same, but the language was different. And, and this is how cults operate. Like, absolutely. They are constantly rebranding themselves. And I'm thinking of the multi-level marketing industry in particular in order to meet the culture where they are, but sell what? the same things. Talk to us about the multi-level marketing intro. This is a this is a new terminology, as in like it's not new terminology, but it's new to Instagram where we're hearing about it. MLM, you might have seen it on yes. uh, Instagram as. Can you just quickly explain what that is? Sure. So uh, multi-level marketing companies are sort of the legally loopholed version of a pyramid scheme where, you know, maybe someone you went to high school with where will slide into your DMs and say, hey, girl, do you want the opportunity to be a boss babe, to be an entrepreneur, a mompreneur? Take the once in a lifetime opportunity to start your own business and sell essential oils or, you know, supplements or leggings or something. And um, the the business structure works such that uh, you pay a buy in fee and um, you are then required to recruit people to your so-called downline every single month. And you earn commission off everyone that you recruit. Um, and the sort of promise is that if you work hard enough and believe enough in yourself and, you know, bootstrap and all the sort of American meritocracy uh, dogma that we're taught from birth, then you'll become a millionaire in a year, even though lots of people have done the math and it, it doesn't check out. If you were to recruit as many people to your downline as they say you should, then at the end of a year, you would have like more people in your downline than the population of the earth. So it's it, just, it, it. it's it's a perfect scam. But a lot of the messaging of the multi-level marketing industry is the same messaging as the diet industry. It's that, you know, if you don't succeed in losing weight, then there is something profoundly morally inferior about you. You're not only a, a bad uh, person or an ugly person, but you're a bad American. You're a bad wife. You're a bad mother. You've disappointed God. And to your point, yeah, there are all these like e extremely racist uh, American Protestant origins about, you know, how how certain thin bodies, thin white bodies were pleasing to God. Um, of course, these <laughs> not not true. That <laughs> can hard to prove. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, so that all of the, all of this messaging uh, shares shares a lot of qualities in common. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Since reading your book now, I can't see the word fucking culture without cult now. Like it's all <laughs> I can see. The four letters just stand out 10 times bigger than the rest of the other three. And I... I'm, I wonder if we could like delve a little bit deeper into like helping people spot, like, especially with like diet and beauty culture, you know, you bring up the, um, I'm 
I'm always so afraid to even bring them up because people think I'm obsessed with them, but right now they are relevant. But like the Kardashian-esque influencers, right? Mm -hmm. Like that has also been like a kind of like cultish thing where, and I don't think it's just them. I think they have fallen victim to, I think they've been a big part of perpetuating it, but I think they've fallen victim to this weird trend that started like 10 years ago where, isn't it interesting, right? That if Angelina Jolie hadn't been born... (laughs) millions of faces wouldn't look the way they currently do now <laughs> because she came along like like pre-Angelina Jolie and I'm not blaming her for anything it's just her fucking face right but pre-Angelina Jolie we had more of a kind of like Kate Moss beauty standard Meg mm-hmm. Ryan like thinner lips the tiny nose the you know like maybe almond shaped eyes didn't really matter but there was like a little bit it was just different and then we had different types of beauty that kind of also existed within different ethnicities you know Ashwarya right all these different people Angelina Jolie bursts onto the screen and suddenly beauty is redefined for the first Mm. time since like Marilyn Monroe, where we've really like, it's like Marilyn, Kate Moss, and then Angelina, as in my opinion, as like the three kind of like global iconic beauty (laughs) The father, son, and Holy Ghost. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. The trifecta of, of fuck the rest of us who aren't born looking like that. So Angelina Jolie suddenly with the very large lips and then quite like, you know, uh, ethnic, like almond shaped, massive Bambi eyes. And then the teeny tiny nose and the very, very chiseled cheekbones. Uh, Everyone to me looks like a kind of pumped, morphed Mm. version of Angelina Jolie. Like, and it's just lasted for such a long time. And when I look online, it's like everyone has the same I'm sure I'm doing like the winged, I'm sure that some part of it's like permeated like my own makeup style. Oh, I know. It's hard. It's, I mean, even if you think like I have absolutely zero membership in the cult of the look of the Kardashians or Angelina Jolie, like it's, it's hard to avoid. I mean, through osmosis, it's everywhere. A hundred percent. But you see people pumping their lips and making their noses smaller, either contouring or literally like shaving down the bone of their nose, shaving down the bone of their jaw. People are getting this thing called threading now. Don't know yeah, if you've threading. heard about it. Yeah, threading. Yeah. It's like the it's the thread that goes from like your cheek oh. up to your eye. Oh my and god! Pulls it your makes me like squeamish to well, think so, about. Well, it's not just that, but also like it's being linked now to like fucking facial paralysis and neuralgia. Neuralgia oh. is one of the single. Mo- it's like uh, I I think. Um, Torture is the only way I could describe neuralgia, which is like a chronic nerve pain that you can't get away from with any kind of level of pain medication. Like there's no escape from it and it comes and goes and can last for like years on end, uh, sometimes for the rest of your life. I know people who've had it chronically forever. So please don't fuck with the nerves of your face. Um if you can avoid it. Uh, but you know, like all the things we're doing is all kind of like to morph these sort of Angelina faces. Right. Because she sort of looked like that perfect mix of ethnicities. You've got like a lot of white right. women being like, well, I I don't like like black or Indian uh, entire aesthetics, but I do like the big lips and I do like the slanted eyes and I do like the long, thick hair. Like and so and I like the butts, uh, but I don't like the arms and right. I don't like the thighs. And but I do like the breasts. And it's just like just this cherry picking and she kind of had That's it all right. in this kind of one Lara Croft package. Yes, but everyone but everyone but everyone looks the fucking same. I know. Everyone I know looks it the is same. it is very disturbing. Like sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you'll like come across an artist like right before they get big and then you catch up with them five years later mm-hmm. and now they look like a Kardashian. It's like that is that is haunting. But I think it is no coincidence that what is happening with beauty standards where we're sort of like 
Frankensteining a monster. It's like, oh, I'm, yeah, it's like I'm going to sort of grossly cherry pick individual body parts from different ethnicities, you know, conveniently for, for my white body. I'm speaking theoretically here, not my personal white body, but, um, in the, in that sort of similar way, we're, we're doing that with belief and religion, you know, like we're sort of, um, like, feasting from a buffet of beliefs and from beauty standards and where this gets troubling is is the cultural appropriation space and when you sort of bastardize certain teachings or certain body parts and then commodify them. So I see this in new age spaces a lot where, you know, certain new age leaders or self-help leaders like Keith Raniere of Nexium, for example, will sort of take uh, like a Buddhist teaching and will twist it and warp it and commodify it and sell it. Um, and that really appeals to like a white audience. So for yeah, example, I think of yoga and I think of Kundalini. I think of white women. I don't yes, think of Indian exactly, people. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a lot of what's happening in the beauty industry, you know, whereas in self-help spaces or wellness spaces, you might take the Buddhist tenet of drive all blames into one and turn it into, you are the only person that's responsible for your pain. That's a limiting belief. Don't be a victim. That's a victim mindset. In the beauty space, we're turning, you know, so so many qualities that people are just naturally born with into something that you can profit from on Instagram. Oh God, you're so smart. I just want to talk to you all day, every day. <laughs> I want you to come back on this podcast like 45 times. Um, but I... Uh, I just, I, I really enjoy how, like this lens that you have like kind of uh, gifted us to be able to look at all of this through. Like it's, uh, it kind of like helps with the, um, and I really like the fact that you kind of, you disavow the word like brainwashing, but I'd like to find another, like it's just the manipulation. It helps us, it helps us with our manipulation to realize that this is very procedural, it's oh, yeah. very procedural and and it's just a model that has existed kind of for thousands of fucking years that's just happening all over again and it's vital for us to kind of like have the ability to see the signs and find out and to to know that like listen you can trust yourself you can give yeah. yourself agency to participate a little bit in something that's a bit culty because that's a bit fun that's all right you know, yeah. like I'm sure I do. Um, oh, I absolutely do. I mean, how how lonely would life be if we had to completely defect from everything considered a little bit cultish? A hundred percent. I mean, look, when you like, I have lived like I. <laughs> this is such a weird and ridiculous thing to say. I'm not sure if I'll keep it in. I probably will because I've got no boundaries. <laughs> Me um, either. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I uh, or. I feel uh, weird saying this, but like I became like aware, like I, I wasn't a very good communicator when I was younger, but I became a good communicator like much later in life. And I, at least I think I'm quite a good communicator. And I uh, became aware that because of my height and because of my fucking big boobs and my broad shoulders and like I have a kind of like very uh, eccentric sometimes way of dressing and I'm a, a character because I'm a fucking actor, I'm a performer, I have a way to be able to communicate with people that sometimes can be powerful at times, right? And people listen to the words that I say and I make a fucking stink about something online and people will follow me. So I have been told 
before and I have this fear about myself. It's like, I have the makings of a cult leader. Now that was like, oh, <laughs> oh I've been told got, that too. Wait, exactly. And I've got like the long, the long religious looking hair and like, you know, and I'm, you know, I can be, a, a, you know, I, and I stand up for things and I reject things and I, I aim to sway people, but not because I want them to sway in my direction. I would like them to learn how to sway in their own direction. Oh, that's beautiful. So I'm extremely like careful of trying not to like, slogan too much or yeah with, with i weigh in and of itself being a community i've always been like oh my god <laughs> when i was reading your book with every page i was like please don't make it that i'm a cult like i'm just trying really hard to like and it's and it's hard because there is like a with any kind of form of like quote unquote branding there is a kind of cultishness oh my god totally group. so i'm like how fuck do i make sure i weigh <laughs> doesn't become a cult and i don't become motherfucking bagwan or sheila or the combo of the two <laughs> like i i want to be aware of how i make sure that i don't because I don't want that. Like I've always yeah. tried to tell people, don't try and be like, I don't want to be aspirational. I also right. shouldn't be aspirational. Cause oh, I'm this fucking, is so funny. I mean, I, it's because just... I'm a fuck up, but like, <laughs> but how do, how do I, how do we as brand builders with a generation of brand builders, like how do we <laughs> prevent ourselves from like being complicit? Right. Is that okay to ask you? That? Yeah. Oh my God. And is it course. weird that I said that I have the potential of a cult? Oh my God. No, not at all. And I completely relate. I mean, we <laughs> sort of, we sort of parody ourselves on my podcast. Sounds like a cult yeah. where we like have little chants and we have little phrases that we repeat. Um, and it's a little bit meta and it's a, a complete parody. Um, while all the while acknowledging very seriously that if you have a public platform and we, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but like we never anticipated that our podcast would grow oh, sort of quote unquote cult following. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that said, a lot of cult leaders, you know, they didn't set out to be cult leaders. They were just these sort of opportunists and um, opportunism is something that a lot of artists uh, have in common with cult leaders. But um, but I, I completely relate. It's like, how do I how do I, you know, uh, communicate my ideas in a way that feels um, <laughs> cultish in a good way? Um, you know, marketing language and cultish language often have a lot in common. But, I, you know, I'm interested in marketing. And so, you know, it's a really worthwhile question. And of course, you know, again, I, I always approach everything from a language angle. And so I think it's it's important to make space for other people to use their own vocabularies to talk about your work. Um, there needs to be a space for pushback. In cultish, I talk about this one linguistic technique that all sort of dangerous cult leaders use. It's called the thought terminating cliche. And it's a sort of stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated and aimed at shutting down independent thinking and questioning. So in- Can you give an of, example? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So like in self-helpy wellness Spaces. I already brought up this term, but they might, uh, you know, dismiss a valid concern or doubt that you could have as a limiting belief. Um, in uh, I, I brought up the term conspirituality earlier. I want to define it. That's a combination of the words conspiracy theory and spirituality. It's the sort of like QAnon shaman, the like anti-vax wellness warriors who seem kind of feminist, but also right wing. It's that sort of uh, sort of human who believes in the new age tenant that we're on the brink of a paradigm shift, but also the conspiratorial tenet that a secret cabal of evil elites is secretly controlling the sociopolitical order. So mm -hmm. um, in conspirituality spaces, they might, you know, say things like don't let yourself be ruled by fear or trust the plan. Um, do your research. Research, of course, not meaning peer reviewed studies, but falling down the the quote unquote right Reddit rabbit holes. Um, 
So thought-terminating cliches also show up in our everyday lives. There are things like, oh, boys will be boys. It's all in God's plan. It is what it is. Um, and if you can, you know, avoid coming up with your own thought-terminating cliches to catchily and zingily shut down people's independent thinking and pushback, mm-hmm. that's that's a good start. <laughs> well, totally. I mean, that's something that we'll say, like, we have to tentatively tentatively try to do on this podcast is like we are challenging certain things like when I challenge the left I always feel like it's sort of like um like a my heart's gonna fall out of my vagina because I feel so afraid (laughs) of like challenging these things or like challenging beauty culture like we're trying to challenge it but we're also trying not to be cultish in how we challenge it but I'd like but I'm so grateful for your work because it'll just maintain that I stay on my toes to make sure (laughs) I'm I'm trying with this to create a free space for learning I know me too again like I always with everything that I write I'm just constantly realizing that like my mission is to be more empathetic toward others and more skeptical of myself a hundred percent so well said and I think if we were all to um adopt that way of thinking I think this would be a better place such a better place so okay just before you go tell me what advice do you have for people out there who've now just been like maybe had some of their like beliefs challenged or shaken or they're suddenly like fuck it feels like it's just everywhere it's like a mist in the air like what advice do you have when it comes to you know maintaining self-determination through such a like culty time Yes. You know, I, I spoke to a Jonestown survivor for cultish. What who, is Jonestown quickly? Oh, Jonestown. Uh, that was uh, sort of spiritual turned sociopolitical infamous group uh, of the 60s and 70s that ended in a mass suicide that was really more of a murder, but that got covered in an extremely sensational way in the media. Um, this is the the tragedy that the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid derived from. Um, because a lot of people in that group died or almost a thousand people, um, by forcibly ingesting a mixture of grape flavor aid. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was a different brand, um, fun fact and, uh, and, and poison. So, uh, that's, that was this really, really just one of the most notorious cults of, of all time. Um, it's really the tragedy that put cults on the mainstream map, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to the Manson family murders. But I spoke to a woman who was very bright and service oriented and, and just really wanted to, to make a better world who not only survived Jonestown, she, went on to join Synanon, which was another sort of 70s era socialist utopian compound that my dad was forced to join as a child. Okay, so like this source was just a wild person to talk to and had so much insight and so much self-awareness and humor. And she told me, you know, I I was not ready to give up on the one compound solution after Jonestown. That's why she joined Synanon. After the two notorious cults, she was like, "Okay, I'm good. I'm a communalist. If I could find everything I wanted to uh, on one compound, I would. But it just doesn't seem to be working out for me. So she she was like, instead, I think the thing is to join multiple different quote unquote cults to, you know, have one foot into a meditation community if you so choose. She was like, I also am a part of an immigrants' rights activism community. Sometimes I get together with my old Synanon pals and we have dinner and shoot the shit. And she's a member of multiple different groups, all of which allowed her to have one foot out the door and she could leave completely voluntarily with minimal exit costs. And I think this is sort of maybe the answer to uh, make kind of a cringy finance analogy. You want to diversify your social and spiritual mm-hmm. portfolio instead of like fully investing in one thing. Um, and that can sort of keep you 
as skeptical, but also as dreamy as you need to be. That's great advice. So everything in moderation, essentially. Essentially. And, you know, the group will tell you if moderation is not allowed, you know, like even Scientology on the outset will be like, you can participate in any religion. You know, you're totally free. You can have one foot out the door. But increasingly, it becomes clear that that isn't true. So if you start to feel this sort of cognitive dissonance, like, oh, no, like I love this group. I was promised something really great. But what's happening doesn't align with that. They might serve you a thought terminating cliche to shut you down. You know, they might serve you an us, them emotionally charged buzzword to shut you down. But trust that feeling, trust that cognitive dissonance, because Mm. any group that is, you know, cultish, but not too cultish for comfort will allow you to participate casually. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Come back a thousand times. Come hang out with me anytime. Uh, You've been a real fucking joy. Everyone should go and well, tell us where we can find you. Oh, sure. Okay. So um, I I have two books. One is called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. The other is called Word Slut, a feminist guide to taking back the English language. In case anyone was curious about my politics, um, they're nerdy, juicy, linguistics-y books, and they're available wherever books are sold, including on audiobook. Uh, I also have a podcast called Sounds Like a Cult, and um, I'm in the cult of Instagram, hardcore. I want to defect, but I don't know if I can. Um, And you can find me on there at Amanda underscore Montel. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Well, I'm sure everyone will. I didn't get a chance to dig in enough into you but because your ideas and your thoughts are so interesting but <laughs> maybe another day maybe another day You're, you've got another book coming out come back again for that but oh, um, so you've nice. been a joy and I feel like I've learned so much thank you so much oh it's my pleasure thank you so much for listening to this week's episode I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself Jamila Jamil Aaron Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory it is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend James Blake if you haven't already please rate, review and subscribe to the show it's a great way to show your support we also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything check it out you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iway lastly over at iway we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast you can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com and now we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners hello i'm gayan and i'm from belgium i weigh my kindness and empathy my unapologetic loudness and humor my queerness and sexuality. I weigh my art and love for movies and books. And I weigh my mistakes, and there are many, and my ability to learn from them. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.